0: Take your Bible with me this morning. Turn to Luke 24. Luke 24. It's always a joy to worship our Savior together, but especially today as we remember the gift of his resurrection. You know, in world history, there have been a lot of significant events. There have been events that dramatically altered the world stage, events that that now that they've happened we can never go back to the way we were. We think about important inventions, things like the invention of electricity, the automobile, the airplane. Going back even further we think about inventions like the printing press and how that dramatically altered human history. We think about things like the bow and arrow, then the rifle, then the revolver which has moved to now machine guns and on to nuclear weapons. These are things that are so significant that we can really talk about human history before we had these things... ...and human history after we had these things, but we can't go back to the way things were. We think about important historical events like World War I, World War II... ...or individuals like Alexander the Great and William Shakespeare and Abraham Lincoln. All of these events and inventions and people left a lasting mark on history... But there's only one man who literally split time. The whole world now categorizes human history as the time before he was born and the time after he came. That man, of course, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything about Jesus is significant. Jesus' miraculous birth is significant. His perfect life is significant. Is significant. His sacrificial death, of course, is significant. But all of this culminates to this climactic event in the life of Christ, His miraculous resurrection. In fact, the Apostle Paul would go on to describe the importance of the resurrection in this way, in First Corinthians chapter 15. He says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. You see, Paul recognizes that the resurrection of Christ validates all that Christ claimed, all that he taught, and all that he accomplished. And for us this morning to remind ourselves of the importance of this event, I want us just to look through the words of the inspired pen of Luke here in Luke 24. As we return to very familiar events, and yet may that familiarity not keep us from again grasping the significance of what Christ has done for us. The Gospel of Luke has a united theme, which is that Jesus is the Son of Man. We see that even in our text this morning. Let's read Luke 24, verses 1 to 9. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven And to all the rest. Simply put, these nine verses tell us to remember Christ's words and believe that He is the risen Savior. But as we come to this passage, it's important for us to go back for a moment and just remind ourselves of the the crucial events that have led to this moment in the Gospel of Luke. Earlier that week, remember, Jesus enters into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover before his crucifixion at the end of the week, and at this time, the crowds are praising him. They see him as the coming Messiah, the coming king, and they give him a king's welcome. But then, shockingly, Jesus is betrayed, arrested, and then crucified on Friday and hurriedly placed in a tomb that evening because the Sabbath day was about to begin. On Saturday, the Sabbath was observed as the disciples and followers of Christ grieved and mourned his death. And we have to admit that we can't possibly understand the mixture of emotions that those disciples must have felt on that day. On that Sabbath day, unlike any other Sabbath they had had before, as they tried to wrap their minds around the events of that week, they saw Jesus come into town, received as a king, as they knew was right and good, and then yet they watched him crucified on Friday, and here it is Saturday with him in the grave. And they were dumbfounded because understand that they didn't just hope that Jesus was the Messiah. The disciples had come to believe it. They'd come to know it. Remember, Peter had already made the good confession You are the Christ, the Son of God. And so now they're trying to reconcile the truth that they know with the circumstance that they're currently living in. Undoubtedly, they're wondering how can these things be true? And just imagine the, the heaviness the confusion, the sadness that they must have felt, and then bring that with you into this text as it opens with this first scene that we'll call a sorrowful journey. A sorrowful journey, verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. Now notice... First of all, the emphasis on the fact that this happens on the first day of the week. That's not by happenstance, that's not a random historical fact. Uh, understand that according to the, the Jewish calendar, of course, Sunday would have been the first day of the week, and so their week culminated into Saturday with the Sabbath day, and then the work week would have been, began again on Sunday. The fact that this happens on Sunday is, in fact, the reason that we're here to worship today. And when I say that, I don't mean because it's Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday. I mean every Sunday we come on Sunday because every gospel writer records that these events happened on the first day of the week. This event of the resurrection of Christ was so monumental that Christ, having fulfilled the law, the Sabbath then being set aside, Christians began to meet thenceforth on Sunday. Even this monumental shift from Saturday to Sunday for God's people to worship is a proof of the resurrection. Before this, the thought for a Jewish believer to to stop worshiping on the Sabbath would would have been blasphemous. And so the only possible explanation for the people of God beginning to meet on Sunday rather than Saturday is because these events actually took place. So when he says, on the first day of the week, don't skip over that, it's transformed church history and even affects us today. But notice it was at early dawn on the first day of the week. All of the gospel writers record that this happened right at the first rays of sunshine. In fact, if if we synthesize the gospel accounts, they likely started while it was still dark and they began traveling to the tomb. And as they get to the tomb, the, the first rays of the sun are just coming over the horizon as they make it there. You know, there are different details given in each of the gospel accounts, and some who want to to speculate about the Bible have tried to say that they contradict one another. But in fact, as we take all of the gospels together, they don't contradict one another, they complement one another. And what we get is a full picture of what actually happened on that day. Now this morning, my goal really is not to give a compilation of what all of the gospels record, but just to look at Luke's account, and perhaps at another time we will... Look at how all of the Gospels sync together. But this morning, notice that they begin at early dawn, and they come to the tomb, it says, bringing the spices that they have prepared. Now, at this point, the word they has not been explained. Who are these people? But he tells us later, in verse 10, Luke says, Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, also the other women with them. So this is a group of women. We don't know exactly how many there were, but these three prominent names are mentioned. Mary Magdalene, who was a lady that that Christ had delivered from demonic possession. Joanna, who's married to a man who's a government official that works for Herod. She likely gave financially to support the ministry of Christ and was a faithful follower of Christ. And then this Mary here is said to be The mother of James, this would be James the Lesser, one of the disciples. So these women in a group come to the tomb on this Sunday... Jesus died, remember, on Friday, and they had to quickly get him into the tomb because Sabbath was coming. They couldn't finish the required burial ritual for Jesus, and so they they wait till after the Sabbath day. These ladies are coming back with their spices, intending to respectfully, lovingly respect the body of Christ by wrapping him in these spices. But notice what this insinuates The fact that they're coming to the tomb with these spices means they have no expectation of a resurrection. They are coming fully expecting to find a dead body. They're coming with love, they're coming with admiration, they're coming with devotion. But they're not coming thinking that Jesus will be raised from the dead reveals that they had failed along with the rest of the disciples and Jesus' followers to correctly understand what he himself had taught them, as we're going to see later on. They should have all been there, all the disciples, these ladies and every other believer in Christ, coming that day, but not to wrap his body in spices, but coming ready to greet their risen Savior. And yet, to begin, here we are. This group of ladies coming together and what they find when they come to the tomb is something odd and incredibly unsettling. Because in verse 2 we see a second scene that we'll call an empty tomb. An empty tomb, verses 2 and 3. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. As you've probably seen in pictures, the tomb that Jesus was buried in was probably somewhat like a, a man-made cave large enough for several people to walk inside, and the entrance to that tomb would have been covered by a round stone, a large stone that would have been rolled in front of the tomb. We know this historically because Matthew describes the tomb. In Matthew 27, it says, and Joseph, that's Joseph of Arimathea, took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. Now, this, when we say a large stone, we mean a really large stone, a stone that would have been impossible for these women to move on their own. In fact, Mark records that on the way to the tomb, the, the ladies are talking amongst themselves, saying, how in the world are we going to move this stone? Mark sixteen three. they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? But Luke decides to omit that detail and just mention that when they get there, the, the stone is in fact rolled away. Now, to say this is odd is an understatement. Remember, the, the, the first morning rays of the sun are just now peeking over the horizon after Sabbath. It, it, it would have been totally unexpected that the tomb would already be opened. And the removal of the stone piques their curiosity, and so they step inside to take a look around. It says, but when they entered... They did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Obviously, this description clues us in that this must have been quite a large tomb if all of them are able to step inside and and take a look. But just picture how horrified and shocked they must have been to not only find the, the stone rolled away, but to find it empty. Put yourself in their shoes. These people are grieving. They just saw their Savior crucified on Friday. They've been reeling all day Saturday, longing to be there to prepare his body for burial. And then they get there, and it's open, and he's gone. Imagine what they would have thought. Like, Where is he? Who has taken him, had to have been the thought. And why would they add this insult on top of all of the other insults to take away the body of Christ so that he can't even have a proper burial? Now, we don't know how long they were left in this state talking amongst themselves, but they're miraculously interrupted in the middle of their confusion. In scene number three, where we'll spend the bulk of our time, we see an angelic explanation, beginning in verse 4. It says, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. So these ladies are standing around, confused, their eyebrows squinched, their heads shaking as they look at one another, trying to come up with an explanation that went out of nowhere. The text makes it sound like just out of thin air, these two men, it calls them, appear. It doesn't talk about them walking into this tomb, it just says suddenly, that is, they're just there all of a sudden, and this is such a shocking, startling appearance that it evokes an involuntary physical response. Have you ever been startled to the point that you jump? You move away from what startled you? That's that's the kind of startled here, only to a degree that we have never experienced. Because while it describes these two uh, beings as men, that's because their appearance looked like male men, they actually are said to be angels in verse 23. These are not just men, they're angels. And based on what they're wearing, they've obviously come from... The glory of God from the place of God because it says they're wearing dazzling clothing. Now, the word dazzling is maybe not the the clearest translation because the word dazzling is most often used in scripture to describe the appearance of lightning. When you see the light, the brilliance of lightning, that's the word dazzling here. So, so picture this, this bright light in the same way that on a dark night, lightning will draw your attention from miles away. All of a sudden, there are these two angels standing in the tomb with them, and their clothing is exuding this, this light, which really, if you think about it, must be the, 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 the light that comes from being in the presence of the glory of God. In the same way that Moses' face was shining with the glory of God when he came down off the mountain. These angels have lived their their life experience in the very presence of God, and so the glory of God is shining around them off of their clothing. It's no wonder then that these women respond with two descriptions. One describes how they felt. It says, and these women were terrified. Of course they were. Just like every other person in Scripture that we see encountering an angel, they don't have a chat and have a conversation. They're, they're terrified. They're shaken to the core when they see this, this angelic being. The same thing happens here. Not only that, but this being terrified zaps the strength from their body, and they don't know what else to do except to bow. So all of them, it says, bowed their faces to the ground. So you see the scene inside this tomb that's now exuding light from the glory of God, emanating from these Angels, Here are these ladies now bowed with their faces to the ground, trembling in fear. And it's here that we suddenly begin to realize that the reason the stone was rolled away was not to let Jesus out, but to let these witnesses in. Jesus didn't need anyone to roll away the stone for him to leave. We see him later entering rooms that are locked. Uh, he is risen in his glorified form. He, he didn't need any help getting out of the tomb. No, the, the stone is rolled away so that these witnesses can come in and now they can be the first, the first privileged few to hear that this resurrection has taken place. And so it is that these angels then begin to speak. The men said to them, And what they say really here are are three brief statements, brief but powerful statements. The first statement comes in the form of a question. The second statement comes in the form of a proclamation. And the third in the form of a command, all of them essentially repeating the same idea. This first statement here is a question. Look at this profound question. The first thing that the angel says to them is this. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? Why do you seek the living one among the dead? In this question, then, there is a rebuke and an encouragement altogether. It's a rebuke because it reveals that these women came to the tomb that day with a wrong understanding about Jesus. They came expecting to find a dead man. They were carrying the spices for a dead man. And the angel says you're looking for Jesus in the wrong place because you're in the place for dead people and Jesus is not dead. Why do you look for the living one among the dead? But at the same time that this is a rebuke, it's an encouragement because the implication of the question is you're looking in the wrong place because Jesus is alive. He's not dead. In fact, he refers to him as the living one. That is, the, the one who's not only alive himself, but as, as he said of himself, he is the one from whom life comes. Eternal life will come to all of his people through him. He is the living one. If they want to find Jesus, they have to reorient their understanding of who Jesus is and understand they can't come with spices to respect a dead man. They need to come ready to worship the risen Savior Jesus Christ. This is the only appropriate way to come. And it's here that we have to stop and recognize that many in the world today are still making the mistake that these women made that morning. Many are fascinated by Jesus. They want to study Jesus as a historical figure. The History Channel and National Geographic will spend millions making high-definition documentaries voiced by famous actors searching uh, supposedly for the historical Jesus. Secular universities and pagan archaeologists will give their lives to analyzing the Greek New Testament and digging in the dirt of Israel trying to find the, the historic Jesus. Some would go as far as to say that Jesus is a good man, that he's a moral man. Some would even say that his life, to some level at least, is worthy of our imitation. Others would admit that he was unjustly and unfairly treated, even murdered. But understand that all of that study and all of that research and even that admiration for Jesus is misfounded if it begins with the premise that he is a dead man. You cannot come to a saving faith of of Jesus if you come to the tomb carrying the spices prepared for a dead man. You have to come to Jesus beginning with the right foundation, which is understanding that he is the Lord. He is God in human flesh, and he lives forevermore. This is the only appropriate way to respond to Jesus Christ. What the angels are declaring here is that if you want to find Jesus... You have to first understand and believe he's the living one. The one who's conquered death through his resurrection. Do you believe that this morning? It is the the foundation of our faith if you're in Christ. But if you struggle to believe that Jesus has been risen from the dead, I just encourage you to hang with me and listen to the rest of what these angels have to say. Because the second statement here is in the form of a proclamation. Proclamation. After asking the question, they then proclaim, He is not here, but He has risen. In case these ladies were were not catching the drift of the question, now the angel just says it flat out He's not here. And the reason He's not here is because He is risen. Just as the angels announced the glorious birth of Christ on the night of his birth there to the shepherds in the field, the angels here in the tomb announced the resurrection of Christ to these ladies. You know, every person on the planet must face the fact that at least the first portion of what this statement says is absolutely undeniably true. He is not here. You can go to Israel. I've been there. There are two potential sites for the historic site of the burial place of Christ. One of them is more likely than the other, but you can go to both, and you'll find he's not in there. He is not here. Every person has to deal with the fact that the tomb is empty and has to come to a conclusion and what the angels say here is the reason, the explanation is not that someone stole his body. It's not that he wasn't really dead and the, the cool of the tomb sort of awakened him from fainting. No, he's not there because though he was dead, he is risen. This is the truth of the gospel. These words contain our glorious hope. He has Risen, Christian, do you understand? That is the foundation of our hope. It's the foundation of your faith. It's why you can have faith that one day you too will be resurrected because he's the first fruits from the dead. He says, if I go to, to, away, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to do that, I'm going to come back to bring you to be with me. And we have confidence of that because these words have changed everything. The reality of the resurrection of Christ validates The significance of all that he did, all that he was, all that he taught. We see that even here in this verb. You know, in the Greek text, this verb that's translated, he is risen, is actually in the passive voice, which means we ought to translate it this way. He has been raised. He has been raised. Now, what's the significance of that change? Well, the significance is that the Bible routinely records that it is God the Father who raised Christ the Son. We see this in several places. Let me just mention two passages where this is clearly stated. Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, as Peter is preaching the gospel, he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Verse 24. But God, the Father, raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Ephesians chapter 1 declares the same truth. Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you'll know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what's the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. These are just two examples of many that we could take from Scripture But what I want you to see is that the implications of the fact that it is the Father who raised the Son are immense. Because remember, when Jesus died on the cross, he was dying as our substitute. This is what we call a substitutionary atonement. He atoned for our sins by taking our place on the cross. Jesus said that he was taking the wrath of the Father on himself for our sins. So he's offering himself as a payment to God for our sins. Now, how can we know that it worked? How do we know? How do we know that the Father accepted that sacrifice that Christ was making to him? Well, we know it beyond a shadow of a doubt because when Jesus said, It is finished, the Father said, Amen, when he raised him from the dead. And he declared, It is is finished by raising his son from the dead the father validates that his sacrifice was absolutely sufficient the father had accepted that sacrifice on the part of his people so we don't ever have to wonder when we say that our sins are forgiven past present and future for all who are in christ we can say that with confidence because the tomb is empty and christ has been raised he's left us without a shadow of a doubt and not only has the Father raised him from the dead, but he went a step further than that and took him to his right hand. Philippians chapter 2 says, For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is why Paul would say, If Christ hasn't been raised, you're still in your sins. But then he would go on to say later in that same chapter, but Christ has been raised. He has been raised. And this, Christian, is our hope because it validates all that Christ taught, all that Christ did. It validates who Christ is. The angels go on then to Give a third statement here in the form of a command. Having given a question and a pronouncement, now we have this this command. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee. The word remember here is the command. It's a command for these women who live so closely with Christ and his earthly ministry to stop and think about what he taught them. The angel saying, remember. Remember what he himself said to you. What is it that he said? Well, he's going to summarize the teaching of Christ, the prophecy of Christ of his own death and resurrection into three statements. He said this to you saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. Now, notice that Luke uses that title here, the Son of Man. That is the the title that is the theme of this book. That title, The Son of Man, comes from Daniel chapter 7. It's a prophecy of the, the Ancient of Days. The Father is giving this eternal kingdom to the Son of Man, who is Jesus Christ. And of course, the disciples were ready for the ushering in of that kingdom, for Christ to sit as a physical king on his throne. And he's going to do that. But what Jesus revealed to them is that before he takes his place as king in that way, there's something else that he must do. Notice that word must in the passage here. That's a, an important word. It's a tiny three letter Greek word that literally means it is necessary. It's absolutely necessary. It had to happen. He had to be delivered over into the hands of sinful men. The question then is delivered over by who? Who delivered Jesus over? We could say it was the crowds that, that, that they're gathered together. Asked for his crucifixion. Yelled for his crucifixion. We could say it was the Jewish leaders who conspired against him. We could say it was his betrayer, Judas. All of those things are true in and of themselves. And yet, there is another greater reason. Another deeper reality here that explains why this had to happen. And Peter explains it. We actually read it earlier in that same sermon on Pentecost. Acts 2.23, Peter says, This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross. Predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. The shocking reason why this had to happen this way is because this was the plan of the ages. This was God's plan of redemption that God ordained before he made the world to reveal his own glory, to show himself through the suffering of his son on behalf of sinners to redeem for himself a people. And this was predetermined by the plan of God, and therefore we see it prophesied in Scripture, certainly from the mouth of Christ, as we'll look at in a moment, but even before Christ was born, going all the way back to Genesis 3.15, but very clearly in Isaiah 53. Look at Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6. He says, surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Why was it necessary? Why did it have to happen that he was handed over to these wicked men? Because it was the plan of the ages, the plan of redemption, that God the Father had said before it ever happened that this is exactly what he was going to do. And thus he was to die a very particular kind of death. The text says, then, and be crucified. Not only must he be handed over, but he must be crucified. Crucifixion is a, a horrific kind of death that matches the, the the testimony of Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah. He was truly the suffering servant, beaten and torn, nailed to a cross. But, of course, the greatest agony of the son was when the sky grew dark and black that day in symbolism of the fact that the father was pouring out his wrath on his own son. He took the wrath of God on himself. But, of course, that's not the end of the story, thankfully, because he goes on to say not only was he delivered over, not only was he crucified, but on the third day, he rose again. This too, by the way, was planned from eternity past. This was always in the mind of God. We see it also in Isaiah 53. We see hints at the resurrection. Isaiah 53, verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. Verse 12 says, Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death. Now, how is it that he pours out himself to death and yet he's going to see his offspring and prolong his days and receive this portion with the great is because he wasn't going to stay dead. But the actual testimony, the teaching of Christ that the angels have in mind is very clearly stated for us in Matthew 17. Listen to where Jesus says this explicitly. While they were gathered together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. Listen, this is yet another proof that every single one of us must humbly accept that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true, because Jesus prophesied it before it ever happened. And then it came to pass exactly as he said that it would. You know, Luke's Words this morning are a call to every single person to repent and believe the gospel. The reason that these events had to happen to Jesus is because we are sinners who desperately needed to be reconciled to God. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. And our sin has made us guilty before God. We deserve the wrath of God for our sins. And yet the good news of the gospel is that though we deserve the wrath of God, as we read from Romans this morning to start the service, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God sent his son for us to live in our place, to die in our place, and as we're seeing this morning, to then rise again, validating that for all who would repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, they would receive eternal life and forgiveness of sins. Listen, don't miss the key truth of this text. Luke is calling you and me to believe not only the resurrection, but the implications of the resurrection. That you and I must come to Jesus, repenting of our sins and placing our faith in him alone for salvation. If you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, I I plead with you on this Resurrection Sunday to consider your life, to humble yourself, Repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ alone. But having witnessed this, these ladies respond in a fourth scene that we'll call a faithful response. A faithful response. Verses 8 and 9, it says, And they remembered his words. They remembered his words. I love that statement. The, as the angels spoke to these women, you can just see them recalling the things that Jesus taught. You can see the dots beginning to connect as they connect it to Friday in the cross, and now the empty tomb, and it's like, oh, how did we not see this? Yes, of course, Jesus told us beforehand that this was going to happen exactly as it has happened. Suddenly, it's all crystal clear It turns out so much of the Christian life actually comes back to remembering the words of Christ. These ladies turned their mind back to truth. The Holy Spirit illuminated that truth so they could understand it. And all of a sudden, everything changed. They saw with clarity the things that had been so confusing to them before. And the idea here is that they, they also believe that they got it. Jesus has raised from the dead. You can see the realization hitting them between the eyes. And what I want us to understand is that, that we can't afford to make the same mistake. You see, these, these women were looking at the words of Christ through their circumstance instead of looking at their circumstance through the lens of the words of Christ. And we can do the same thing. We, when we are depressed and down and discouraged and feel that we're going to be crushed and run over by the trials of life, inevitably it's because we're looking at, we're trying to interpret God's truth through the lens of our circumstance instead of flipping that around and saying, no, what God has said is true. And so whatever my circumstances are doing, I have to, to believe that God's word is true. And we can believe that because of the resurrection. This is the ultimate demonstration the ultimate amen of the Father, that yes, what Jesus said is true. And that means not only all that that he said that he would do is true, but all that he says he's going to do in the future is also true. And so this call to remember the words of Christ, certainly it rang true for these women that day in that tomb, but it rings true for us. Remember his words. That remembering then, And that faith that welled up within them drove them to respond. How did they respond to these truths? Well, it says they remembered and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. So, this group of women hurries back to the other disciples, the other followers of Christ, who no doubt were gathered together, still mourning, still disillusioned, still confused, and they get to burst into that room and be the first human witnesses to say, He is risen. We were just there. He's not there. He is risen. You can almost hear the excitement in their voices as they report these things to the eleven. Of course, we know the rest of the story. Initially, they weren't believed, but Christ would appear to them in the flesh. They would see him, and all would come to understand he is risen. It is true. Though it sounds too good to be true, it is, in fact, true. And this Resurrection Sunday, just as those... Ladies responded, We too must respond. Let me just remind us of how we should respond. We've already mentioned them before, but the appropriate response first is this believe in Christ. Believe in Christ. All the evidence is here. A tomb is empty, Christ's prophecy is clear, the angelic proclamation has been made. The only proper response then is to repent. And believe in Jesus Christ. Believe that he is in fact the living one. The one that you and I need to give us life. Eternal life which is found only in him. Believe that his resurrection is the father's affirmation. That his sacrifice has been accepted. Believe the gospel. Secondly, remember Christ's words. If you're in Christ... Commit yourself to remembering the words of Christ. Feast on the words of Christ. Let the words of Christ shepherd your heart through the difficulties of life. Understand that the, the, the empty tomb doesn't just give us this confidence in our salvation. It does that. But it gives us confidence in the whole of the Christian life. Recall to mind, he said it and then he did it. He's come and he's coming again. And so no matter what I'm experiencing now, I just need to remember his words and analyze my situation through what he has said. As Paul would tell the Thessalonians, comfort your hearts with these truths. Comfort one another with these truths. And thirdly, proclaim Christ to others. Proclaim Christ to others. You see, these these ladies immediately... Without, without even having to be told, as soon as they heard the good news, what did they do? They had to tell. They had to tell somebody else. They had to get it out. They had to go back to others who, who loved Christ and to tell him. They went out then from there to tell the whole world the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's still to be our ongoing response. The overwhelming joy of what Christ has done for us should not just be contained within our hearts and our minds for us to dwell on and us to enjoy, but it ought to then well up and come out of our mouths to tell a lost and dying world, Jesus Christ has come, Jesus Christ has died, and Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. When's the last time? When's the last time you personally shared the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Christ, with somebody else? It's so easy for us to get used to just enjoying the benefits of what Christ has done for us and forgetting those around us. But may we this morning be propelled again anew as we rejoice in what he's done to open our mouths and proclaim the good news. He is not here. He is risen. And that's good news not just on Easter Sunday, but every moment of every day. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful to be your people. We're so grateful that this faith that we have, it is, it is not an unfounded faith. It's not a faith that's built on shaky details. It's, it's a faith that's built on the miraculous truth that all have to face, that your Son though he was dead, lives because you raised him from the dead. And having raised him from the dead, you affirmed what he had done and that all who would come in faith to him would be reconciled to you. God, help these truths to comfort us anew, to shake us anew, to pursue you more faithfully, to share you more faithfully. Help us never to get over these things. Help us never wake a single day without appreciation for who you are and what you've done so graciously for us. God, we love you. We praise you for these things. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.